0: Good morning. Um, I have the honor of introducing Dr. Thomas J. Sefera today, who is a colleague, a mentor, and my past section chief when I was in Cleveland at Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital. Um, Dr. Sefera is the current section chief. He's the Martin and Betty Roskam Chair in Pediatric Gastroenterology. He um, was previously um, a associate, he's an associate professor at Case Western Reserve University, and soon to be a full professor, and previously, he was an associate professor and the section chief in the University of Oklahoma Health Sciences Center. He did a clinical fellowship and a research fellowship um, previously. The clinical fellowship was at Nationwide Children's in Columbus, Ohio, and the research fellowship was in the University of Michigan Medical Center. Um, he went on after that, um, prior to that, actually, he was a chief resident at the Ohio State University Nationwide Children's. He's, he's gone on since his uh, residency to, to uh, have more than 80 publications and more than 24, 25 uh, chapters, book chapters written and has really been an uh, uh, a, a great mentor, not only for me, but for many people at, at Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital. He's, he's, I could call him a colleague and a friend. And today um, we're lucky to introduce him uh, to be our Grand Rouse Speaker. Tom.
1: Okay, well, uh, honor, thank you very much. And I'm actually thrilled to be here. It was quite an experience. We had, uh, getting here, we had a little bit of snow in Cleveland when I woke up. And, you know, just getting to the airport I thought was going to be a challenge. But that half inch pales to what, what we see here. So, so uh, I'm actually thrilled to be here and really excited about giving this talk. In fact, when I was talking to Amr and we were saying, well, what would happen if I didn't get here? We were talking about we all have canned talks that we a lot of us could just jump up and give a talk that we have written before and given many times. This actually is the first time that I've given this talk more on the structure of medical databases as opposed to what my results were using those databases. So, so I hope there's not any glitches in some of the slides or anything, but just bear with me if we go through it and there's maybe some uh, spelling errors. Uh, so we'll go ahead and get started. I'm gonna talk about really using uh, big data in investigating pediatric diseases or of course any, any type of disease. So a few disclosures at first is that I am uh, or served on the Medical Advisory Committee uh, with Merck and Company for a clinical trial for a therapeutic and C-difficile. This will have no impact on our talk, and I'm also a case reviewer for Best Doctors. Uh, So the objectives today are really to identify the principles of big data. Evaluate the strengths and weaknesses of large administrative, uh, uh, medical, or healthcare databases for research, and assess the res- and learn how to assess the results of manuscripts using large administrative uh, healthcare databases. So, what is big data? The simplest, uh, you know, definition is it's data only bigger. I think that's the, that's the definition when I was talking to my 10-year-old boys. That's kind of, well, it's big data, dad. And I thought, that's pretty good. But there's a lot of, you'll, you'll see this, you see this talked about now all the time uh, in multiple things on the Internet. And really, big data, some of the best definitions that I was able to come up with. Some of the earliest one was the top one where big data is high volume, high velocity, and high variety information uh, the, to assess that uh, as it that demand cost-effective, innovative forms of information processing for enhanced insight and decision making. It really it demands that it's so big, we just can't use this in an Excel spreadsheet. You have to use something else to really evaluate this type of data. So when we look at when it is relatively new uh, term, even when we say big data or large data sets. And this is from, you know, uh, uh, Google, the Ngram viewer, where you see words that have been published in books. And it really wasn't until the late 70s when you start seeing people talking about or mentioning big data, big data sets, and what that really means. And, and in fact, it's really become very common. I did some Google searches. The term "big data" comes up with you know uh, 342 million results. And as you look through some of the popular search terms that people would use, including Bitcoin, that now is in the news, only has 71 million hits. Where not until you get to the U.S. government budget that you see hits uh, getting that big. So. Big data really is something that we all need to be aware of, not only in medicine but in in our everyday lives because it's becoming something that we'll be dealing with all the time. So again, how about in, again, the medical literature? This is using using a simple search term, restricting for big data. These, this is where the term big data is actually mentioned in manuscripts. And it's just a dramatic increase, uh, you know, over the last, you know, uh, two decades on on using this term and what, how we're going to address handling big data. So why now? Why is this becoming so common? I mean, clearly there is information we're, we're at the end of the information age or ever, All of this stuff has been, you know, we've been generating data for for centuries, of course. But so what's really happened is that there's been an increase in computer processing power. That's what's really driving a lot of this. And when we look at that, where this is, you know, how has that really come about? Well, we may have all heard about Moore's Law that talks about uh, how how rapidly computers are being improved and ex- and changed, and this is held true even to now that every two years the processing power of computers are doubling, and then I just took some some common or the the common consumer products, and you look at the Apple II C in 1984. The processing power is 1 megahertz. And now, you you know, in 2017, you could buy an iMac for 4.2 gigahertz. I mean, the processing power has just exponentially grown. So we're able to crunch these kind of numbers and to generate and to hold it. Also, there's been a development of inexpensive high-density storage. I don't know, you know, if we remember floppy drives or zip drives. We barely could... Could contain some of the data. And in fact, you look at that, when we were analog, data was, it, it, storage was very expensive. You would need warehouses to even store computerized data. Now, as we get to the digital uh, storage, and the, and the digital stuff really didn't start taking over until the 2000. So it's only been two decades where most of our data has been stored in digital and not analog form. And so, and also, there's an increase in recorded data. And the easiest way is I could put that is that in the, in the first uh, figure on the, the left, this is from my iPhoto uh, file. I went back to 2004. And this is my wife. She still looks the same, by the way. And, and, and over here is from my iPhone. And that's the, the notch from the iPhone 10. That, and, and if we look at what I have there, this has i had fifty nine photos that I digitally captured in the, the entire year of two thousand and four. I now have over two thousand images, including one of armor <laughs> on my on my iphone and it 's just we 're all generating so much data that it 's all being captured so and, and in this one review, they keep talking about the amount of digital data being uh, created is doubling every two years. And in fact, somewhere on the Internet, that's my source, is that I saw a, a reference saying that the, the, every, every five years, we produce more data than what was ever produced prior in the history of man. It is just tremendous amount of data that's being produced in all different sources. And so now... Big data is something we're dealing with. It is, it's here. We have the ability to analyze it and we're capturing more of it. So one of the, the tenets of big data, they talk about these four Vs when we look at it and we start talking to people who do the analysis of the data. One is quantity, the volume, the one you know, how much you're generating, speed, how fast is it being done, what's being collected the variety, what kind of types of data are there, you know, photographs, uh, data, you know, from insurance companies, whatever the data is, and then veracity is the messiness of the data. So this is how are you going to analyze this data as you're moving forward? How is that going to be done? And so right now for the common data sources, like where, where are the sources of big data that outside of, you know, uh, again, medicine. So you have social media, Facebook. The amount of data that is being generated on Facebook is just tremendous. Financial institutions, all of this is accessible data. Music sites, videos, Netflix, YouTube. Every time someone watches a video that's recorded, who's watching that? There's actually, I've seen a couple advertisements recently where Uh, on Twitter, an advertisement where somebody watched some movie 10 times on Netflix and the ad came out, you know, why did you watch it that many times? They're tracing, tracking everything that everyone's doing. You know, driving aids, all the maps, Waze, Uber, all of this stuff is recorded. Security cameras, the cameras we take, web searches, all of this data is built up into bigger and bigger data. We're seeing this across the country or across the world. And so what, what could you use big data for? So we get all this data. Where are people being excited about using it? One, using a traffic navigation, financial fraud and risk to, to know where you're going with your credit card. Of course, you know, I've had several times my credit card stop. They stop a payment or, you know, it doesn't work. And I'm traveling somewhere out of the city where I'm normally not at. And they said, well, why, you know, I have to call them and say, well, we didn't expect you to be there, you know. And it's like, okay, so I now have to call my credit card company and tell them I'm traveling, you know, to Denver this weekend, you know, so expect charges there. Uh, trading analytics, homeland security, retail, and search quality. The two things that I have up here that I always find intriguing is Amazon has a patent for what they call anticipatory shipping. This could not be done without big data. They actually have a patent, and they're starting to do this, where they ship products to warehouses to where they think people are going to buy that product. And in fact, several times what this patent is for is then to load that product on the truck in a box, anticipating that someone on that driver's route is going to buy a specific product so they can deliver it at the same time you order it. So as soon as the order goes in, it generates the label, they put it on the truck and they do it. They already anticipate what's gonna be bought and who's gonna buy it and where it needs to be delivered. Also, UPS using big data is they almost never use left turns. UPS trucks have their own proprietary mapping software, and in most cases, it's more efficient for them to take a longer route if they make a right-hand turn because they don't have to wait in traffic. They've actually estimated it saves the company millions of dollars over years in not only time, but in fuel efficiency because they're not going against traffic. So again, big data can be very useful in many different situations. Mm-hmm. So now let's turn to big data in healthcare, and we're not talking about the large-sized textbooks. Again, that's a lot of data; it's not big data, or the unread manuscripts stacking on un- and, and journals in all of our offices. You know that we don't get to. We have a lot of data, but big data is bigger than what you conventionally think of in medicine. So let's look at these these the the four V's that you know, I kind of reviewed and how it applies to medical big data. So if we talk about quantity, we know we generate a lot of data. Clinic and hospital visits, the diagnostic tests, treatments, insurance claims. Those, that has a lot of information in insurance claims, what's being generated, how much paperwork the insurance companies generate. That's all data that's being captured. The medical literature, biomedical data, proteanomics, metabolomics, The chemical repositories, knowing what new drugs, what's out there, what could be applied, and social media, of course, who's sick, who's complaining of something. Those all are integrated in big data that can be used in medicine. And then the velocity. What's the speed of this data being generated? Well, if you look at what's being published, even, which dramatically increased. This is the number of publications in PubMed. And so in 1980... There was 280,000 publications. And in fact, I worked in a library in 84, where they, they subscribed to almost every medical journal that was available, and they would tear, I think at that time, they subscribed to over 1,000 journals. And they would take the articles out and file them. And they had a huge filing system, warehouse of it, and being able to access it. It was possible, almost possible, to do it in 1980. As you look at over time, we're at, in 2015, there was over a million articles published just and and put on PubMed alone. That is, every year now, over a million articles are being published. The literature is just exploding. This is data... And all of those manuscripts have data that is just at the speed we can't keep up with using conventional methods. The variety. Medicine, we we have all types of uh, things. We type in free text on our computer, right? We type in. That's a different type of data. We have coded information. There's frequently, this could be scanned documents. It could be typed or written data and images. And then you also have isolated databases and databanks. But what about the messiness and their veracity? Most of the data we have is unstructured. It's not coded. It's the, the, when we mean coded, you know, when you enter something in your EMR and you type a paragraph, it's in the EMR and it's accessible, but it's not coded. Because if you write something, patient had abdominal pain for 24 hours, you can't access that as a code. It's not in the data, it's just written text. So you actually have to have a means of reading the text and interpreting it if you're going to use that data for additional information. So there are actually computer programs that are now being developed where you, they search using natural language and will comb through medical notes and say, oh, and let's say you're interested in, again, a, a particular type of particular rashes. And it's, you, we frequently get a code rash, but you still have to read the note to say was it petechia or what was going on. Now some of the, the the software is able to look and read your note and and look for those specific terms or phrases that would be of interest using natural language searches. But it is again difficult when it's not coded. And then there's limited validation of the data when we talk about anything we enter. You could type and type a mistake or type something. Nobody goes back in and rechecks it. And as, even our coders, when our coders uh, in the hospital, you know, extract what you wrote and put it in and submit it for billing, there's rarely double checking except for the insurance company saying they're not going to b- pay for it. But it's rarely that there's a back backup to say, how are we doing it? Is this being entered in the correct way? Is it validated? So again, there's a lot of problems when you start looking at using big data, especially ones that are and then when are in databases. So so this gives rise then to this uh, new field of integrated bioinformatics, I- where all of this stuff is coming together. Where if you could actually take a look at the the data all in one, you could start using and and. The future people will start using the term precision medicine too where you can use all of this together to help take care of your patient so what are our big challenges in in healthcare data you know it, and then one is assuring the data is anonymous you know we're generating all this data I talk about we want to use this data for you know Patient care for other things, but is it anonymous? You, you know, again, if you have the medical literature, uh, medical information, and everyone's using it, it you have to protect uh, uh, anonymity. Clarify who owns the data, who has access, who could get to it. Interpreting multiple different data types, the interoperability of the data sets, because again, it's it's it, it's in different repositories. Avoidance of overcounting by entering in multiple databases. So if you are studying the epidemiology of a particular disease, let's say you want to know, we're looking at a flu, and you want to know influenza, how it's going. Well, you, you, if you look at multiple different databases, the laboratory, you know, how many times they have a positive influenza test, you look at the, the recorded EMR, or you look at billing based upon it, all of a sudden you may be overcounting when you're trying to say how common something is if you start using big data outside of general databases. Uh, and then measuring the quality of the data. Is, again, is, is the data, can you say this data is high quality? Did we measure it? Are we able to look at it in that fashion? So what are the promises of this big data? One, we could improve healthcare utilization. Where do we have the resources? Where could we put uh, see patients in a more effective way? Where we, could we deliver care? More accurate prognoses. We could predict things in the future using big data. Increase access to health care. Predict future events, where there's going to be outbreaks. And, of course, discovery of new therapeutics. Mm-hmm. There was a recent article where someone uh, found that, you know, a, a new drug that was not previously used, for uh, a particular heart condition in adults, and they do it primarily by just by just looking in in medical repositories in in data and seeing if it fit the characteristics, and are able to come up with some theories of this drug should work based upon you know the characteristics of the drug, comparing it to other agents that are available. So let's talk about. We talked about the big data and all the problems where it's all in multiple different places. So let's let's talk about big data that's already organized. That's the easiest to use and that's where we could get the most bang for our buck right now because it is organized. And where do you see big data that's organized? One, these are healthcare administrative databases, consortium databases, disease registries, surgery and procedure registries, and research databases that people develop. So all of these, this is the data that's already organized. So what, what I'm going to focus on mainly today are healthcare administrative databases. And when we mean administrative database, we're not talking about something that your administrator uses that's standing in front of all the doctors telling you what to do. It's actually data that's, that's routinely collected uh, during clinic or any uh, patient encounter And it's really, these databases have been designed for administrative purposes. They're collecting the data to help with health services reimbursement, tracking, making sure the government is is funding programs appropriately, tracking services, and quality improvement. These were not necessarily designed, in fact, most of them were not designed for research. They were designed to understand how how, uh, uh, we care for our patients. What are the strengths of these databases? They're large data sets. It's patient, every patient encountered within a particular system, let's say. They're unbiased because it's everybody. They're, the patients are not selected. They didn't, these are not patients. You know, you don't get informed consent to put them in a, tr- in this uh, trial. These are just data that's collected. It's, it's not research-based enrollment. And then it could be relatively inexpensive to use. These databases, since they're, they're not developed for a profit. Nobody did it for profit. But what are the limitations? Well, they're designed for for really administrative management, uh, and we're not designed for research. They're limited to disorders or symptoms that require medical visits. So, if you just well, if you have something that may be a symptom that doesn't require someone to go to a clinic or to be hospitalized, that's not going to be uh, uh, taken care of. So, it's not you know uh, captured. It's dependent upon your coder, your coding encoders, and one of the big problems. With that is coders really code, and physicians, we code primarily for reimbursement. So you, the, they will go into the medical, you, you know, your EMR or your system, and you hit the buttons. You're really coding on those not to say, I better be sure I capture all the diagnoses this patient has because one day I'm going to go back and I want to, you know, study a particular disease. No, you use it because you, be, you need to be reimbursed. Also... Uh, the entered data is not cross-checked or verified frequently. It's just put in. And then, again, it's not designed to answer a specific research question. Let's say you, ha- you want to study a particular problem or a symptom or is there association between two different diseases. If you don't design your database to ask that question, it may be very difficult to ask that. So what, what, are, the, what are some of the big uh, administrative databases? The biggest one? that's available and I've used most frequently and I'll show some examples from this is is through the healthcare cost and utilization project or Hcup and this is funded by the federal government it's a family of healthcare databases it's the largest collection of longitudinal hospital care in the United States it's all payer and unpaid it's everyone who's seen and it's encounter level information which means it doesn't track individual patients it tracks individual encounters so you don't know who to pay it's anonymous data so it's just the individual encounters not patients that are tracked and what are those databases there's seven specific databases that they publish uh, and they're listed here. The three, uh, the biggest one is the nationwide, or now called the National Inpatient Data Sample. And then there's the kids, a pediatric inpatient uh, database. There's also one in the emergency room and, and also uh, a few other databases. So the, the NIS, this was initiated in 1988. It has uh, uh, data that's published yearly. It approximates 20% of discharges from all U.S. community hospitals. The community, and they always say, and I originally when I started using this community hospitals, well, that's not capturing academic. It, it, they have a different term for what community hospitals. And essentially, community hospitals are all hospitals in the United States except for rehab hospitals. So it essentially covers almost all the hospitals when we think about a hospitals. The data, it's data that's calculated from over 7 million hospital stays each year, and then you, this, there is an ability to ca- calculate national estimates. So they know it's a 20% data set. From every, right now it's from every hospital in, in the system. They collect 20% of the data, and there are ways to make it out to be a national level. So if you have a disease that has X number of cases in the database, you could say how many occur nationally on an estimate. It has one primary diagnosis, one to 14 secondary diagnosis, and procedure codes. And they're ICD-9, icd 10 codes. They also list patient information, demographics, hospital characteristics, teaching, non-teaching, rural, uh, payment sources, total charges, discharge status, and the length of stay, and there's several severity and comorbidity uh, measures you could use. The kid, or kid's inpatient database is, uh, was initiated in 1997. This one's published every three years. So, and then it's a, any patient under the age of 21. It has three billion hospital stays each year from 4,000 hospitals. And you could calculate to national estimates and that gives you seven million hospitalizations every year in that, uh, of, of the years that it's da- uh, put in. And then it's structured the same way with the information that also is in the NIST. Um, so again, you have a, uh, the several different databases that could be used. Now, the caveats of these is they are discharge-level information. So you can't track patients across, uh, across the spectrum of their health care. The only one that does track patients to a degree is the readmission database. That tells you if a patient's being readmitted. Uh, charges are recorded, not costs you would have to do, and charges are what the hospital charges, right? Not not what a, the cost of something in reality. So if you wanted to know how much, you know, we spend on aspirin, it's not the charge that happens, it's going to be the cost. So there are conversions that can be done, though, but that would be necessary. Race is not reported by all states, by some uh, specific state laws, so race data may not be accurate in the databases. and. Uh, it doesn't include laboratory tests or pharmacy, so you don't yet have all the information you need for all types of studies. Well, this is becoming more popular in utilization. If you look at, these are the number of peer-reviewed data, uh, manuscripts using HCUP data from any of the database. You know, in 2000, there was less, 2007, there was less than 200 manuscripts published using this data. And now, you know, last year and this year, this year it will probably be uh, pr- approaching 1,000 manuscripts published using this data. So people are finding the value in these data sets and can be useful in taking care of, pay, uh, doing analyses. Another uh, database that's available is called the FIS. It's the Pediatric Health Information System. It's managed by the Children's Hospital Association. There's 45 hospitals involved in this. Uh, it is limited to, to members of that association and member hospitals. This does track patients individually, and this is where it does so, and it, it tracks them across the inpatient observation, ambulatory surgery, and emergency departments. It was designed for QI activities, though, but research, it, it's, it's, it, you can of course, can be used for research. And it does have diagnostic tests and uh, pharmaceuticals in there. And costs instead of charges, so so again, you have the big data, uh, medical data that, that is organized in, the, in, in these types of registries that can be very useful. So let's if you're doing research in this area, what are the requirements uh, for these studies? And if you're evaluating these studies using large data, what what how do you have to look at it? How do you have to read this? One, is there a good data set description? You know Why was that database created? If it's a federal government, HCUP1, you know, you know, you can look it up, you know the, the, how it was created and what. But if it's a local database or a consortium database, you wanna know why and how it was created, what the sampling methods are. Are they, are they good sampling methods to bring in to capture the patients that need to be captured? What patients are included and excluded? And then are there quality checks on that data? Did somebody go back in and say, yes, all the cases of of biliary atresia were captured and coded appropriately? What's the code accuracy uh, uh, when you're, you see a manuscript that someone's published? Uh, what search algorithm did they use? Were they able to, to identify correctly all the diagnoses they were interested in? And are the codes, you know, how accurate are these codes? Because you know ICD-10 codes they cover a range of different diseases may not be you know may be broad in what they what people actually are coded and then were these codes validated did somebody actually go into the the charts and review them and say these are the appropriate codes for this type of research then there is something that needs to be remembered statistical significance is not clinical significance i think we know that large data sets Generate significant p-values when there's not a significant difference. If you have a proportion, one proportion is 49%, another one is 51%. If you, you know, if you only have uh, 20 samples, that's not significant. If you have two million, that difference is significant, but it's not significant clinically. So you have to, you really want to see confidence intervals. You want to be sure there's not a time-dependent bias where you're measuring outcomes, if you have a database that starts in 2000, the patients who you start studying in 2000, you don't know what happened to them before. And so if you're looking at does aspirin increase the risk of asthma, let's say, if you start stu- the patients in 2000 who, had, who will be coded as not being exposed to aspirin because you don't know what happened previously, and they, may be, uh, they will uh, uh, bias your data. So you have to make sure that the time-dependent is important. And then clustering. Patients, you know, are they only patients seen in the emergency room? Are they only patients seen in specific settings that may change where the model carries? You could have one hospital that is an expert in orthopedic care. They're seeing all of the patients. They have better outcomes, and their data may be very different than data overall. So what things to avoid? And I, I, the, I like to talk about these because you know we, when we were doing some of these studies, we were falling into these traps. One, post hoc uh, hypothesis generation. You don't want to formulate a hypothesis at the outset. You don't want to use data to generate you know your hypothesis. Data mining. You want to look at you know you don't want to just look for results and statistical reworking, and then you never want to over over interpret your results. And so. You know, again, you can use descriptive statistics, predictive analytics as you're going through this. So I want to go through a couple of the manuscripts that we've we've published that use them kind of as case studies in this. So we looked at the hospital care, the healthcare burden of C. diff in patients with inflammatory bowel disease. And you know w- there was this uh, study showing that CDI is increasing in hospitalized children. We wanted to characterize that in IBD patients. We looked at the cup kid and our predictor value with patients with IBD. We had outcome variables, had universal ones that were standard, but then we had to come up with specific variables on our own, what we thought would be important outcomes for these patients as we, we came, came through. And we excluded children under one year of age. And this is important. You need to understand your disease when you're doing this. CDI doesn't occur in children under one year of age. We would probably argue it doesn't occur under two years of age. And then you need to know your data set. If we included those patients in our data set, normal newborns compromise 40% of the discharges in the kid. That would have outweighed all the other data we would have had because, again, they don't have the disease. So they needed to be excluded. And then we looked, we, we, we pulled all the other data for our outcomes. I just want to show you the numbers. For IBD only, we had 12,000 cases. And here we had 447. Again, these numbers are not, we're not able to generate these types of numbers in single center studies. It's impossible to do, or even in small consortiums. We were able to, you know, show p-values, and I said you have to be worried, uh, aware that they don't always tell you uh, the information you need. And then, but we were able to go into confidence intervals. I like to show univariant analysis. Remember, it's different. Univariant may is data that is, you know, you don't control for other variables. I like to see that first because we think as physicians in this model. We don't, aren't, don't have the ability to say, oh, every patient I see with abdominal pain, ha- you know, is different from every patient with abdominal pain at this age or whatever, controlling for socioeconomic status. It's how we think of things. And then data should be shown in a multivariant analysis with your uh, uh, confidence intervals. And you can see we were able to show some significant differences. in in patients that essentially patients with IBD and C. difficile infection were sicker than patients who were not. Interestingly, we did find that bowel surgery was protective. Patients, which again, you have to know how to interpret your results. Patients with, uh, with uh, CDI had less bowel surgery. Well, what, how we would interpret that is is that patients who have a clostridium difficile infection, surgeons don't operate on them right, because they, they treat the infection. If you have bad inflammatory bowel disease without infection, you may require surgery. So again, you have to interpret your results in a clinical scenario. And again, we, we saw an increase. You can look at trends over time, an increase in uh, C. difficile infection in, in patients with uh, inflammatory bowel disease. So we also looked did a study where we looked at acute pancreatitis in hospitalized children. And we looked over a period of 2000 to 2009. And again, there was a report. There was a single center study showing there was an increase in cases of acute pancreatitis. So we wanted to really look at this in a large data set. We used HCUP-KID. And there is a single ICD-9 code for acute pancreatitis. So we were able to look at this in a fairly uh, straightforward process. And we had to decide... Did we want to use it as a primary or secondary diagnosis? For our incidence and trend analysis, we wanted to just see this as a primary diagnosis because we really didn't want to capture the patients who came into the hospital, let's say, with, with, with sepsis. And then they had a bump in their amylase and lipase got coded as pancreatitis. And we were going to say, look, the incidence of pancreatitis is going up, but it's based upon other variables. So we just wanted to look at they came into the hospital with acute pancreatitis. But when we wanted to look at other outcomes from the disease, we did include primary and secondary. And again, we captured other data while they were in the hospital. And 55,000 patients with acute pancreatitis And out of 10 10 million without, again, large data sets, very large. Well, this is all the yellow ones. I think that's projecting okay. But all the yellow ones, most of them were significant differences in everything. And even if you look at, there's some very minor differences in region. And it tells you once you start getting a large data, you can't use, you know, p-values. And then we did find a rising incidence of acute pancreatitis, in patients, in hospice children across the country. So really strong data, you can't argue this is not, un, it's unbiased data, it's difficult to, to argue uh, with. We then did something a little bit differently where we wanted to look at short bowel syndrome in children. So there w- were really no large multicenter studies looking at short bowel syndrome. So we again used H Cup but the problem is there's no ICD-9 at the time when we did this. There was, there's no ICD-9 for short bowel syndrome, so we can't capture the data. So we had to generate our own means of pulling the data, and the, so we used the procedure code that would be used for post-surgical non-absorption, and then procedure code, if, and then if the procedure code where someone is getting TPN. So we we uh, we define short bowel syndrome as, you know, intestinal failure being you need to be on parenteral nutrition, and then if you had a, a, a procedure, you know, that, like neck or something, that you, we would be able to pick that up. So using that data, we were able to generate, you know, we had to come up with our own coding system to look at that. One of the weaknesses of that paper is we didn't validate that, that method. And so we're actually trying to do that in our hospital where we're combing, combing through the records, but you have to do it manually to say every patient with short bowel syndrome was coded correctly. And so it's a little bit difficult. The, we then looked at, again, acute recurrent pancreatitis. So this is a condition where a patient has multiple episodes of, of recurrent of pancreatitis. This is... We were able to use the FIS because they could track patients over time. Again, you can't do one patient or they get multiple episodes if you can't track them. The FIS allowed us to do that. And we had to come up with our own uh, definitions because acute pancreatitis is defined, but there's no ICD-9 code or 10 code for acute recurrent pancreatitis. We limited recurrence to greater than 14 days. So if a patient gets readmitted, we wanted a different episode. And then we had to define that there was an index hospitalization. And, and so we were able to studies and say, yep, using the same thing. They had the same number, so we're pulling the data the same way. I like tables because they could clearly present the results. Correct if you're using costs and charges. Correct for inflation over time. Again, use relevant ages for your research. And uh, appropriate statistics to describe your data. I really think if you're using the central tendency, make sure you use mean, median, and mode appropriately. You should show the data spread. I also believe even though you show mean and standard deviation, you should show the range. And this is where people need to understand your data set and show as much data as possible. Use graphs if you can. Graphs, if you have a lot of data, that may be better shown in graphs. But you have to be careful when you show a graph. So this is this is uh, the next few slides. Some of my favorite uh, kind of slides showing graphs. All of these these uh, curves here have the same uh, uh, summary statistics: the same mean, standard deviation, and correlation. So you could see if you just drew the line, you have to show all of the other data uh, points. And here is another form of that. It's where instead, it notice the mean, standard deviation. And correlation coefficients don't change for any of these graphs. They're all the same. So if you have big data, show the data. And one more from uh, the same investigators showed this. We always like box plot data. People think they're using fancy graphs when they use box plot. But here again, the raw data changes. The box plot doesn't change at all in showing what the data is. So you may have to use other graphs like a violin plot or show the data itself. And then finally, pie charts should never be used. There, there, is, actually, there is actually some uh, psychological studies that have been shown where they show people pie charts and they cannot interpret them. You can't tell the difference between different sizes. They could be, and it, and it matters where you put it on your chart. If it's at the top, it looks bigger than if it's on the side. And so pie charts, they're nice sometimes in giving talks and doing other things. But pie charts, if you really want to show the data, it's very, it, people misinterpret data in pie charts very frequently. And then artificial intelligence. I had to say it. I don't know <laughs> when you're doing anything about big data. Everyone talks about artificial intelligence. I don't, you know, for uh, it, it's good. There's going to be studies done where someone just has a computer program look at the data and spits out results. I mean, you know, we're we're getting there. But I just wanted to bring put that in there so so everyone knows that I talked about artificial intelligence. <laughs> so again, big data and and. Yes, there is sunshine at some point, guys. The big data in medicine and research, it's really here to stay. We're going to start seeing these papers are being published. You know, when you have Journal Club, you're going to start seeing papers using big data. We have to understand what it means and what it does. I really think, though, there is a lot of information we're going to be able to glean out of it. We're going to, everything we're is going to be, really help us in moving medicine forward we're in a new era of how we start to understand diseases. You're not going to have these single center studies that are very biased and lead us astray in a lot of the research that we're doing. And so I just want to thank you guys, thank Armer and Dr. Lund for having me here to give this talk. And uh, I also want to acknowledge all of the collaborators that I've worked at. I had one fellow who led the way in most of this research is Shatanya P- Pant who was a fellow with me at the Who was a, one of my fellows at the University of Oklahoma and we came up with this idea to start studying these uh, these large data sets he it was an internal I'll just say he's med trained he did a pediatric GI fellowship he completed an adult a full adult GI fellowship he's done advanced procedures and published 20, 30 different manuscripts in this field, and now he's in private practice. But anyway, <laughs> so I want to thank you for your attention. Yes. Um,
2: so I think that these, I mean, this is the wave of the future, right? We This is, we're moving into these amazing, powerful computers and computer programs and data storage, just as you say. I'm really suspect of the, um, the huge limitations of the billing derived, I mean, I know how I use the code hypoxemic respiratory failure. I mean, it describes, I put that on wildly variable patients, and it's true for all of them, but they're incredibly different. So, um, registries I think are gonna be really powerful moves toward the future, but then your limitation is, um, you need personnel and you need money to develop, (coughs) enter, and manage the site, then other people can come along and use the data, appropriately or not appropriately, based on all the other limitations. But how do you see these registered and-
1: No, I, I, I agree with that. So early on when some of this data, when the, the large databases were starting, the HCUP databases were being used, we've spent a lot of time, and again, this isn't very long ago, you know, less than five, six years ago, spent a lot of time. Validating our code searches, and that would be if somebody was coded as this in the HCUP database, did someone go back and pull a thousand medical records to prove that they were coded that way? And there are people who are statisticians primarily again, I, you could tell I don't talk about statistics too much statisticians who say you should have that for all the databases and a description of how accurate the data is in these databases. That's not being done. The registries are better. There's a problem with registries because they are expensive. That's the thing. Somebody has to enter that data. And since there is a cost, not everyone's involved in the registry. So, for example, and and many registries are closed. And, and this, is, this is something where I think this is uh, almost, I'll use the travesty. It's, it's, it's a problem when somebody, when you'll read papers that, that say, we looked at X disease, and the paper is from a registry, and you see this registry has 10 institutions, and you call them and you find out, well, what's the access? How do people get in your, re- oh no, we're closed. We're just our 10 institutions. There's many of those in pediatrics. That is very biased because most of those registries that then are done by quaternary or ter- very high level tertiary care medical centers with research in that area and clinical work in that area, which means they get all the referrals, the worst cases. So these are very biased registries. So I think there, there's a problem, but registries may be the way to go, but that's where the cost of, M- of Madison is, is, are we? We're at.
2: But don't you see the promise of artificial intelligence, particularly the national language processing, process things to extract that value? I just think so. It's not relying on the human. Right. Okay. So, so. We're going to be a stage where the data is going to be directly
1: imported from all right. of the right. fields you talked about. So, that. It so it won't be manually right. put in. So. Right. Correct. Made. So there is a company in in Cleveland working through the Cleveland Clinic called Explorus and they are using the IBM Newton? Watson, 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 that's right. So using Watson to use natural language searching to take everything out of all the data generated at the Cleveland Clinic worldwide and put it into a database and that's exactly it. The artificial intelligence comes there where you won't have people entering it and you, you hopefully the data then is secure and is fine. And then they should have links to other sources. They should get the financial data, bring it in. Get the social media data and bring it in. And that that would be the way to solve that, right?
2: Yeah, ultimately in the future, every single person that comes in the hospital will have a data set that's collected, and then you can extract whatever you want. Because it would be a computer that's collecting every single potential data point that you would think could be interesting to study later on. Right, that's happening. It's happening now, we just need to get to Three years from now, and
1: it's actually
2: going to end up big process. The future is a lot closer than we think. <laughs> <laughs> the future is a lot closer than we think. Um, I'm wondering, from a different vantage point, and the education system right now, what you're talking about has exploded over the past five years. Um, certainly, my biostatistics class in medical school was a traditional biostats class, very um, which I did not do well in. Uh, <laughs> I'm wondering how much in the undergraduate medical education or even graduate medical education we're exposing our learners to this type of analysis because there are a lot of good things about using big data but there's a lot of cautions that we need to use and a lot of the big data um, work then gets into the public media very, very quickly now and trying to interpret it not just amongst our colleagues but interpret it for our right. patients is really challenging so, I struggle with
1: Right, and so that's, you know, the the, the, one of the big ones where proton pump inhibitors were a cause of dementia or associated, uh, the, and the p- public media is it causes dementia, not associated with. And then the next big do- data study, well, maybe not, because that's it. It's how that big data is, be- is being used and handled It is going out. So, so the problem is many statistic- this, uh, statisticians and the you know are now learning this. Not all can do this type of analysis because it's it's very different. And I do think, you know, medical schools, we have to start addressing this and understand. It's just like anything else. We were all trained with our journal clubs and we all took statistics courses to understand it. It doesn't come up. You know, again, we did, in one of our early papers, we did something we called trend analysis. And trend analysis is a way of just not showing your graph of data going up. It's, is it going up and is it continuing to go up? Not just did it rise from one year to another. A reviewer came back and said that, oh, it looks like it's statistically significant, not just a trend. So, why are you using that term trend? Again, because it was a physician, Ray, and didn't understand the statistics behind it, right? And that's where we have to change that. so we are getting a time. Um, yeah.
2: oh. uh, in addition to next week, I forgot we have a special presentation at noon today. Uh, Pediatric hematology oncology candidate, Amy is uh, in L5A. So L5A with lunch, so consider that at noon for another special talk. And watch your email boxes because I hear something about an Olaf cake, perhaps on 5 East at 4 p.m. Big um, <laughs> Olaf cake. A lot of people helping eat, so uh, hopefully we'll have an announcement there as well. A so lot going on today, and we'll see you next weekend. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. The Olaf. Oh, okay. hey.